This morning I would like you to open your Bibles up to Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. And I want you to think as you're opening your Bibles about the little expression that absence makes the heart grow fonder, but that familiarity breeds contempt. Absent makes the heart grow fonder. Familiarity breeds contempt. Now, probably the way most of us have experienced this is either through marriage or through having siblings. If it were legal to marry your brother or sister, it really wouldn't matter. (laughs) Because familiarity does breed contempt. And I'm going to think better of it and not illustrate that from our own home. Uh, I will simply say this. If you live in our home, you may not marry someone in our home. But if you visit our home, you will marry someone in our home. And the distinction is familiarity as opposed to visits. You know, you think of marriage and everybody in a marriage hits the wall. And some are honest and some aren't. Some lie and say, there's never been a wall. There is a wall. There's a day when your wife will be lying in bed and you'll still be snoring. And she's thinking, the rest of my life? Now, if you think about a church, what we go through in sibling relationships and in marriage is also true of churches. And there are competing views of small groups. One view of small groups is that... Small groups should be always the same and that you should never violate the boundaries of a small group once it's been put together. And the reason is that that small group develops intimacy, and as it develops intimacy, it's something to be protected so that there can be true sharing and people can what? Feel safe. And we all know that that's what church and small groups are about, is all of us feeling safe. wrong. It's not what church is about. It's never been what church is about. And if you think church has ever been about that, you've never read one of the letters of the New Testament. Because you can tell that uh, every single one of those letters is written to a problem that people aren't safe, there's danger, and peace has to be brought to the church. And so If we go into a small group with the expectation that it will become a nice little community where we'll be safe, we can share in safety, what inevitably happens is that it becomes a black hole of self-absorption. And if you think about churches, you realize that our country is filled with churches that are black holes of self-absorption. Community after community you can go into and you can find a church where if you go in that church on a Sunday morning, you know that by coming in that church on a Sunday morning, you violated an unwritten rule. Right? I mean, it's real obvious. And they'll greet you and smile and say how happy they are that you're there. But you better not have sat in one of the charter members' seats. And you better not have kids that write on the wall. And you better know... When to stand, when to sit, all the little rules of that church, because there will be disapproval of you if you don't know the rules. 
And the church exists to perpetuate its own smugness, its own complacency, and its own selfishness, right? All of us have been to churches like that on vacation, right? Okay, small groups are the same way. Small groups that end up not wanting their borders violated are small groups that have no sense of the evangelistic heart of God. That he has said, go into all the world. That he has said that it is his kindness that holds off so that we may repent. That God is not willing that any should perish. And so our small groups need to reflect the same missional heart, evangelistic heart, the same reaching heart that God has. Churches have to, too. Well, then there's the opposite view of small groups, not the ones that want to be a tight little self-absorbed group, but those who uh, want to be splitting and splitting and splitting. But not splitting because they have a missional heart. Their heart is filled with God's love for outsiders because they're willing to give in to their own desires for the sake of evangelism, but rather people that want to split because after about a year and a half to two years, you kind of get sick of each other. I mean, at that point, you've been praying that your brother will uh, be pure with his computer for about nine months because it took about three months for him to confess his sin. And then you pray for it for nine months and it's time to move on because that brother isn't changing. And it's time to find people that you're not so intimate with. And so we come here to this text of Scripture, Ephesians 4, and let's hear then the word of the Lord that addresses the problems that we have in being intimate with each other. Therefore, says the Apostle Paul, but he is speaking the words of God, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, this text is very clearly focused on the problems that come to a church and to that church's small groups when you get into a situation where you get sick of each other. Thank you, dear brother. And this does happen. Of course, that takes for granted the fact that you're a church that decides that intimacy is right. And many, many churches are opposed to intimacy. And again, you know this when you go in the church. The knowledge of one another is completely superficial. One of the easiest ways to tell this is to look whether or not the church invites each other into your homes. Um, One church I was at out in Colorado, you never, ever got into anybody's home. You were eating together all the time, but you were always eating at restaurants in town. You never got into anybody's home. And often this is an indication of a church that is afraid of intimacy. And uh, so you go into a church that has a commitment to intimacy, 
And when I say intimacy, I mean that we do bear one another's burdens, that we do love one another sincerely from our hearts, that we do confess our sins to one another, that we do pray for one another. All those passages of Scripture that are commands telling us to be intimate. So you go into a church that does have a commitment to intimacy, and all of a sudden you realize that the intimacy is a burden because I really don't like you, and you really don't like me. And it really becomes a pain, especially if the preacher is somebody you don't like. Because the preacher you have to hear week after week. You can kind of get along with other people in the church because other people in the church, you don't have to sit next to them. They're here, you go over to that side. If they're in this small group, you go to that small group. But the preacher, it's like every single week, his voice. I just can't stand, I can't stand to hear his voice. I really can't. I mean, just his voice grates on me. And why doesn't he lose weight? I mean, really, you know, and my clothing, whether I wear a tie, you see, I'm getting behind my safety thing now. (laughs) And there are all these things about preachers. And then you go into a small group and it's interesting. A lot of us are willing to live with a preacher who has sins that are public because you have to have somebody leading And there's nobody that's going to be perfect, but the minute you go into your small group, bam, you are absolutely censorious and judgmental and impatient and 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 condemning and proud. You allow me to have sins, but the guy next to you in the small group, you cut him absolutely no slack. Right? When familiarity begins to breed contempt within the church of Jesus Christ, the command of the Holy Spirit is what you have just had read to you. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all what? With all humility and gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, why does it begin with the word therefore? Well, you need to get so that you can so that you can jump into any of the letters of the New Testament and feel what's going on because you're so familiar with it. What goes on in the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, is that you start out with doctrine and then you move to practice, always. Doctrine, then practice. And this, therefore, is saying, given what I've said about doctrine, do this. Therefore, so you're now in the ethical, the commandment, the moral side, all right? Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, without true doctrine, which is the first part of the book, the way we live our lives would be according to emotion and sentiment and every wind of doctrine, meaning every latest and greatest popular prejudice of what is right and what is wrong. In other words, There would be nothing to protect us from our culture. We could see our culture and God as one. We could think that if we're living according to the values, the standards of our culture, that we're living in a way that's pleasing God. And we'd feel pretty good about ourselves because generally we'd get along with other people because we're being culturally correct, politically correct. All right? But we don't please God because culture is always always opposed to God and his truth. Always. 
Culture is opposed to God and his truth. When we read of the founding of the first Christian church in the early chapters of the book of Acts, right after the Gospels, we read that the first Christian church was devoted to four things in its common life. They were devoted to, it says in Acts 2.42, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And Calvin points out that it begins with fellowship because it, it begins with doctrine because without doctrine you don't have fellowship. In other words, you're never going to be united until you're united in Christ and the true preaching of the Word of God. That's the only union that there will be that is true. The world and Christians who follow the world's prejudices think of doctrine as at best unneeded and at worst evil. And there is a popular saying among Christians, doctrine divides, but Christ unites. This saying is completely false. It is true that doctrine divides. As long as you add the little word false. False doctrine does divide. And it is always the habit of those who promote false doctrine to claim that they are for peace. Whereas the person that's fighting for true doctrine uh, is not running around trying to cop a posture as being a peacemaker. They're fighting for true doctrine because they have absolute absolute conviction that when true doctrine comes, peace will occur because we'll be in line with God. False doctrine divides True doctrine unites. We learn the long, wrong lesson if from the conflicts that surround the, oppose, the exposing of false doctrine that we learn to despise doctrine. And this is one of the great failures, I believe, of the 20th century evangelical movement. In 20th century evangelicalism, uh, there was a great battle at the beginning called the fundamentalist controversy. And after the fundamentalist controversy... Um, there were a number of battles in individual denominations, and many people were scandalized by those battles. And particularly, there was a battle at Wheaton College over a president named J. Oliver Buswell. And Buswell was involved in the reform of the National Presbyterian Church. And all of a sudden, one day, it, it happened that J. Oliver Buswell was fired by the Board of Trustees. Well, my father and uh, mother and Mary Lee's father and mother were all at Wheaton at that time. And it was very interesting listening to different people say what they thought had happened with J. Oliver Buswell. And I had grown up hearing about him, and he had gone on to be a professor at Faith Seminary, and my father had taken his theology under Buswell. And uh, some of you who are musicians know the name Jamie Buswell. Uh, you don't. He's out at the New England Conservatory. Um, good violinist, fiddle player. Um, anyhow, about probably 10 years ago, I wrote the, the archivist, the historical archivist for the uh, PCA, and asked him if he had any correspondence in the files of Buswell that he could send me having to do with his being fired at Wheaton College. And he sent me a number of letters between Buswell and the Board of Trustees and various other individuals. And as I read these letters, it it, it seemed evident to me that the reason Buswell was fired was that he was involved in denominational reform. And when I began to think through how 
Here they had a president who was involved in denominational reform. Well, you know that you always kill the prophets of today while you honor the dead prophets' tombs, right? This is what Jesus said. And so here they had this man fighting for reform. He got fired, right? And then what happened to evangelicals who were at Wheaton at that time? Billy Graham, Ken Concer, just a whole host of people. What happened was all of them decided that the church was a secondary matter and that they didn't need to worry about their doctrine of the church. And so the great weakness of 20th century evangelicalism was that they had no doctrine of the church. None. None. They'd learned their lesson. It was scandalous to see Buswell fighting, and so they all learned to be scandalized by somebody fighting. And he'd been fighting for the church, and so they all learned to have non-denominational churches, no denominational affiliation, no doctrine of the church, and not really to care whether their churches had elders or not, just as long as somebody preached. And that's 20th century evangelicalism. Somebody preaches. And it doesn't really matter whether he preaches in a place where they have discipline whether you have the sacraments, it doesn't really, really matter whether you're church or parachurch because the church has become the parachurch. Okay? And where did it all come from? It all came from this sense that doctrine divides, but Christ unites. And so the message of evangelicalism in America today is what? It's absolutely bare-bones minimalistic. It's It's... It's trust Jesus. That's it. And even what you mean by trust Jesus is up for grabs. You know, it can mean have pleasant, warm feelings about him the way you have about Muhammad. You know? And the Jesus could be the Jesus that's married to Mary Magdalene. As long as it's Jesus. Do you understand this? And so we've become scandalized by doctrine, and we have decided doctrine divides, Christ unites, and so we all love Jesus, but you can put into that whatever content you want. And loving Jesus, I mean, who knows what love is? You know, I think love means that I have a crucifix on my rearview mirror, you know, and that I go to Mass. Well, I think love is that I'm very careful to follow every one of his commandments and i homeschool and i wear a head covering and i use i don't use birth control and i love doug phillips okay and everybody puts into love whatever we want to put in love what do you think loving jesus is well i think loving jesus is having small groups that don't ever change the personnel so that we can be intimate and really pray for one another no, no, I think small groups is that we keep changing so we have the missional heart of Jesus. And uh, that means I get rid of you after a year and a half because I'm really tired of you. And so nobody new comes in the group. You just switch it for another segment of the church. You know what I'm saying? You know, I think I'll take that six people back there. And what does the Bible say? And the Bible says this. The Bible says, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. And you say, yes, that's what it means. Doctrine divides, Christ unites. It says be united. Well, okay, fine. Doctrine divides, Christ unites, right? Okay, so why do we have the other chapters of the book of Ephesians and what are they about anyhow? 
If doctrine divides and Christ unites, why doesn't Ephesians begin with Ephesians 4, chapter 1? But it doesn't. It's got three chapters before. And what do those chapters say? Well, there was, as usual, an issue in the church in Ephesus. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, you'll see what the issue was. It's, excuse me, not the beginning, verse 11. Ephesians 2.11 says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Now, what's going on here? Remember, our mantra is doctrine divides, Christ unites, right? What's going on here? Well, the battle in the church, as in most of the churches in the time of the New Testament, was between the dirty goyim, the filthy Gentiles, and the clean Jews. And the clean Jews did not want to associate with the filthy Gentiles. Now, am I being hyperbolic? Am I exaggerating when I say the filthy Gentiles? No. How do you know? You know from the text of Scripture. Because in the text I just read you is a filthy word. What's the filthy word? It says here, you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. Do you think that that was a compliment? No. As a matter of fact, even in the way the Apostle Paul gives it to us, it's making it clear to us that the Apostle Paul is distancing himself from that. Now, what would it be like today? Well, today it would be like howly or honky or spick or nigger or any of the words that we use to demean other ethnic groups. That's what uncircumcision meant. That's how offensive it was. And what he's saying to them is, doctrine has united. And what's the doctrine? The doctrine is the unity in Jesus Christ. And that has caused certain things to happen. Those who were formerly the so-called uncircumcision are now one with those of the circumcision. And this is a doctrinal battle, and it's fought and fought and fought. We look at the book of Galatians. It's a doctrinal book. The entire book of Galatians is focused on the division between what? Between those who were of the circumcision and those of the uncircumcision. And it's not until you get your doctrine correct that you have any hope of unity. You can't have unity if you have this group being white, this group being black, and this group being Asian. And you say, well, we don't do that, you know. The political correctness machine of the United States of America has taught us that well. And I say, yeah, the political correctness machine of America, about all it teaches you is to tolerate them. 
And that means to carefully rein in your prejudices because you all have them. And that's what I can't get you to see. I try to show you by telling nasty jokes. I try to show you by preaching through Galatians. And you're all still convinced you have no prejudices. This is bunk. This is all liars. You've been so hammered by your culture to not have prejudices that you all deny you have prejudices and so you can never repent. You know, I know you have prejudices because I know myself. (laughs) And you don't want to know my prejudices. Please, Pastor, don't share your prejudices with me. Why? Because you don't want to look in your own heart. There are, huh? Yep. There are certain ethnic groups you can't stand, and you can give me the reasons you can't stand them. Be honest. And if you say, oh, no, preacher, you know, I'm not like that. You know, I'm, I'm a very magnanimous and open and inclusive and diverse, loving. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm evolved. <laughs> I'm progressive. You know, I'm large-hearted, magnanimous. And, of course, the very words you just chose show that you look down your nose at people that aren't educated. And that's the prejudice that no Bloomingtonian has any ability to see. That the east side despises the west side. And that everybody despises the double whites. It's true. It's absolutely true. Union men despise union breakers. Right? Businessmen despise union men. Definitely. And so we all do have our prejudices. Reformed people despise Arminians. Arminians despise Reformed people. Presbyterians despise Baptists. Baptists despise Presbyterians. And it goes on and on and on. I remember the Sunday that I made the mistake of referring to the Colorado River over a long, long period of time, cutting a hole known as the Grand Canyon in the western part of the United States. Man, did I catch it after I said that. Everybody at the door, you don't believe in evolution, do you? And I started having facial tics. <laughs> and the ironic thing is that I believe, personally, okay, I believe in 624, all right? In other words, I believe it's a day, and I believe the Lord created the earth with the appearance of age, okay? I'm out. I'm exposed. That's, that's my position. So why did I speak that way? Well, because that's how somebody that thinks that the Lord created the earth with an appearance of age would speak. You know, you're not going to say, did you notice how God made the Colorado River look like? Wasn't that a neat trick? <laughs> you know, hey, when Jesus made wine, which was grape juice with the appearance of age, instantaneously, do you think people said, isn't this great... Um, No, they called it wine, (laughs) you know, fermented. It couldn't have fermented, you know, couldn't possibly have fermented. And so in our church, we have people that believe in 624, because obviously I do. And we have people that believe in a day age theory, right? But boy, those day age people better keep themselves well hidden.
Now, my own denomination has a policy on this, and the policy is that there are certain parameters within which we won't accuse each other of heresy on this. And you say, well, it's just, it, all that's doing is just, you know, conforming yourself to the spirit of the age. You're just compromising. I say, no, no, there are parameters within which you may not be outside. For instance, no one is allowed to deny the historicity of Adam. Why? Well, because the Bible says one man, Adam. It says, as in Adam, we all died. It's very clear Christ and the apostles all believed in the historicity and taught it of Adam and of Eve. So you can't deny that. Now, I've made you uncomfortable talking about evolution. Some of you. Let's move over to something else. What's safe that I can bring up? Well, of course, if I bring up something safe, I'm not calling you to obey the text. It's the things that aren't safe, the things that we are prepared to judge each other about, that are those places we need to focus our attention and consider one another better than ourselves. Now, a huge one from the very beginning of this church is the issue of how we educate our children. Homeschooling, Christian schooling, public schooling, or what my wife and I do, which is sort of a hybrid of abdication and homeschooling. <laughs> Tim, tell them it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, but he turned out pretty well, you know, you've got to admit it. <laughs> Joseph, our son, was self-motivated and would sit at a table and study all day. Yeah, at least pretend to, he says. And so, you know, we look at each other and we say, you know, I really think it's wrong to ever put your children in public school. And those that are in Christian schools say, you know, I think people that homeschool should have their children socialized. And people that are homeschool say, if the, if the Christian school people were just willing to live by faith, the Lord could make them into good teachers. And we all have these little dances. We dance around each other about how we get educated. Now, what's my position? Well, if I were to order what my preferences are, um, I may become too, too much of a stink to you and have to get fired. So I won't do it. Um, <laughs> but I will say that uh, no Christian can submit to Scripture and not train their children biblically. And I think the greatest burden of proof is definitely on public schoolers. In other words... If you have your children in public school, it better be evident to everybody that you're not abdicating your child's soul to the culture. I mean, it's just, that's a no-brainer. God has given you your children to raise up a godly seed, not to squander them. And your children need to give evidence of being godly if you have them in public school. Now, the good thing about having them in Christian school and homeschooling them is that it doesn't really matter what their character is. Because it's obvious that you're taking a stand for the Lord. Well, if public school people need to have evidence of godly character, 
Christian school people and homeschool people better have an example of godly character. And, and you've got a real serious problem if you're paying three, four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000 a year for tuition at a Christian school and your kids are dressing and acting and speaking and watching movies and listening to music that's identical to what the public school unbelievers are listening to. And that's so true of so many Christian schools around the country. It's wacko. Well, what about homeschoolers who have character defects? Just because they're under their mother and father all day, every day, doesn't mean homeschoolers are sanctified. So you look at the fruit of public and of Christian and of homeschooling. You don't just say, I homeschool, I Christian school. Uh Uh-uh, 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 right? So, do we have grace in this church for those who Christian school and homeschool and public school? Do we have grace? Huh? Huh? Well, yeah, you're saying yes because you don't have any children. (laughs) That was you, Dan. (laughs) Caught you. (laughs) You're saying yes. How about, well, no. (laughs) I'll stick with, yeah. Okay. So, seriously. Seriously. Are we willing to love people that make a different choice about the education of their children? Come on. Are we? You know, we had a woman speak this morning in a worship service, and the Bible says women are to be silent. One time we had, I'm forgetting who it was, but anyhow, we had a woman get up and give a testimony about how God had worked in her life, and we had another woman in our church who had been coming and stopped coming that day because we'd violated the Bible rule that says women aren't to speak in church. She's gone. She never came back. So what does it mean for women to be silent in a church? Well, the entire evangelical church in America has decided that what it means is that women should speak and preach in church and be elders. (laughs) Doctrine divides. Christ unites. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. And so you have a a hermeneutic of progressive revelation where Paul and Jesus couldn't quite become what God wanted them to be. But today in our enlightened day, we can finally realize the full truth of in Christ, there's neither male nor female. And so where the Bible says women should be silent, we say women should preach because we're finally progressive enough to hear all God has for us today. And, of course, anybody that has any kind of a nose knows that stinks to high heaven. It's just our culture wrapped up in a religious uh, costume. That's all it is, right? And so what we really need to do is make absolutely certain that women defer to men in this church. And that means anything that could possibly be misconstrued is like, no way, okay. Right? Well, the truth is you can disagree over what exactly that means because in the New Testament you have clear examples of women taking vocal part in the worship of God's people. And so what people do is say, see, I told you in Christ there's neither male nor female. Right? And what that means is if they took vocal part, then Paul's in conflict with Paul, and I have a hermeneutic of progressive revelation and and, and God doing a new thing. 
And so if a woman over here is prophesying and praying with her head covered, then that means that over here women should preach with their heads uncovered. <laughs> this is lunatic. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. And again, what we show is we're the product of our culture and we have no respect for the Word of God. We might be an erratist, but we have no respect for the authority of God's Word. And so then you get about the hard business of looking at the text where it says that women prophesied and women prayed and it talks about head coverings and it says women are to be silent and it says women are not to exercise authority over a man because Adam was created first and then Eve and it was Eve who was deceived. And you put them all together and you say, you know, I think the Holy Spirit is logical. And let's presume that there is some internal, intrinsic harmony to his teaching on the nature of sexuality. <laughs> let's give the Holy Spirit the benefit of the doubt. And then you do the work and you begin to see how these things fit together. And you see that, by my judgment, it's no offense for us to have testimonies and singing and announcements. But you should never have a woman preaching. Never. Because if preaching isn't authoritative, what is? What on earth was the Holy Spirit prohibiting if it wasn't preaching? And you say, well, the highest authority in the church is in the elders meeting when people are being disciplined. That's what a woman is prohibited from doing. And so you've got all these churches in a phalanx behind Willow Creek putting women into elders' meetings. And you go, what? So women are elders, women are pastors, and we throw out all of Scripture. Why? Because doctrine divides, Christ unites, and we've all learned that in Christ there's neither male nor female. And it's too bad that the New Testament, they only learned that there was neither Jew nor Greek. But today we're learning there's neither male nor female. Parallel construction, anybody can see it, it's true. You know what, today? The hardest thing to do today is to stand for God's truth. Because why? Because you'll be accused of being arrogant. If you stand for God's truth today, the irony is that everybody will think you're proud. But you know something? You know who's really proud in America today? The person who's really proud is the person who flatters you and who goes along to get along. Because that's the person that's not willing to sacrifice their reputation for the sake of God in his word. Do you understand me? So if you have a reputation as being a very humble person, I say, bunk! If people think you're humble, I say you're an arrogant and proud man. Because there ain't no way you can live for Christ today and be thought to be humble. You know why these chairs aren't filled today? They're not filled because our church is filled with a bunch of proud men like me. It would never occur to you to suffer rejection by bringing the words of eternal life to your friends. 
First, you have to ask them to come, and they can say no. And then if they come, you know they're going to say no when he gets done preaching. And you're going to what? Have to be inconvenienced and spend Sunday lunch explaining to them the words of eternal life. You know, the Apostle Paul, every time he went to a new city, went into the synagogue first. He was such a glutton for punishment. You know, he always got much better acceptance from the Gentiles. Why didn't he start with them? He went into the synagogue and told them that whereas in the past God separated into the circumcision and uncircumcision, he was doing a new thing, and now it didn't matter whether or not you were circumcised. Is that a message that's going to be accepted by the proud Jews who are circumcised and who refer to the Gentiles as the uncircumcision, as the goyim? No, it's not. But the Apostle Paul loved his own people so much that he went to them and suffered their rejection. Who have you been rejected by this week because of your love for Jesus? Who? Who? Is there anybody sitting next to you that you have put your own personal relationship at stake with by inviting them to hear the news of the gospel? You're surrounded by people, if you're at the university, who are constantly talking about diversity and inclusivity and pluralism and all these all these uh, mantra, moral kind of nothings, you know, these, these cotton candy things, right? Okay? You hear them constantly. Have you ever thought of saying to them, hey, you know, there's no diversity and inclusivity and pluralism here, but can I bring you to church because we really have it there? And I think you'll recognize it. I mean, I sit next to a guy that lives in a double wide. In fact, he, he built our church. It's a joke, Mike. (laughs) I sit next to a guy who actually is a counter-tenor. And like, I like arena rock. I sit next to a guy who every single Sunday, he gets up and goes to the bathroom. And I can't imagine what his problem is but he's part of our glorious diversity. I sit next to somebody that has a principle of having their child sit in church and scream all through the service. And you know why they do that? I found out it's beautiful. I sit next to somebody, and I'm a man who was abused by her father when she was a little girl. And she can't hardly bear to look in my eyes. And she feels safe with me. We've got some who are from Korea and some who are from uh, Eastern Europe, and we've got missionaries to Myanmar, and we've got, like, people who are uneducated and people who are educated and people who are anti-intellectuals and people who are history of science and philosophy PhD candidates, and we get along. I mean, people, listen, think. Is this or is this not a diverse group of people? Let me tell you, I know you, you are diverse. You are very, very diverse. Do you love each other? If all of the world is looking for diversity and pluralism, don't you think that they should have an opportunity to see the real thing? Can you think of anything that's more evangelistic than coming into a church where there is true pluralism and love and then learning that they were all baptized with the one baptism into Jesus Christ? And that it stopped being circumcision and uncircumcision, and it became new life in Jesus Christ. Come on. Come on. 
Why don't you take that to your co-workers and your neighbors? Why? And you know why? Because you're a very proud man. And you don't want them to reject you. Because along with that diversity comes the fact that the only way it will ever happen is to bow before Jesus Christ. And all the talk about all the roads leading to the same place, to God. You know, Hindu and, and Islam and, and, and Buddhist and, and Roman Catholic and Protestant and everybody goes to the same place. You'll have to die to that. So, yeah, you can get diversity as long as you get baptized. And you can't be baptized into God and God and God or into Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. You have to be baptized into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, here is the truth. It's a truth that the world knows but doesn't know at all. It's a truth that the whole world is going after today. And we're so proud that we wouldn't lift a finger to share it. And yet Paul, every time, he goes into the synagogue to suffer rejection. And often the rejection came in the form of being stoned, being whipped, being naked. What about Jesus? He was crucified. What about Peter? Upside down. What about Martin Luther? What about Katie? She was married to Martin Luther, if that isn't a scary thought. Listen. It takes real work to obey the command of Scripture that God has given us today. It takes real work. You know what the real work is? It takes learning who you are. And you will do anything to avoid learning who you are. You will walk around 24 hours a day with iPod buds in your ears so that you never have to learn who you are. You know what I'm saying? Why does it help to learn who you are? Because when you learn who you are, then you think less of yourself and more of others. Self-knowledge in a believer always leads to meekness and humility growing. Always. The further you get in your faith, the less you will think of yourself. And the more you will think of others. Does this make sense? It is true. And so what about us? Do we really believe that true religion consists of knowing God and knowing ourselves? If so, how well do you know yourself? Do you know yourself well enough to know that your wife is infinitely superior to you? Infinitely. And not because she's a woman, but because she's godly. Are you envious of your wife's godliness? Do you ask God to give it to you? Okay. You know what the text says? The text says, be one. Think more highly of others than you think of yourself because God has made us one. How exactly is it that Jesus is our bridegroom and is one with his bride, which is the church, if the church is many? In other words, how can Christ be one with his bride if his bride is cut up into 225 pieces here? 
There's no unity between Christ and his bridegroom. And by the way, his bridegroom is not you. It is the church. (laughs) Okay, how does he make himself one if all of us are sitting thinking how superior we are to the person next to us? Huh? Huh? Okay, so think right now. What are the doctrinal things that we can allow other people to differ with us over? Baptism? Education? How about eschatology? Does everybody have to be post-millennial? How about reform? Does everybody have to be reformed in this church for us to love them? Now, let me say one final thing to you. If you can't immediately come up with a long list of things that are secondary and that you can love somebody, even though they disagree with you on, you don't know the first thing about obeying this text. Because it doesn't do any good to say, well, hypothetically, you know, I think there are secondary matters that I can tolerate other people disagreeing with me over if you can't produce one. (laughs) You have to be able to tell me what they are. So what's a secondary matter to you, Wayne? Baptism. All right, Stephen? Baptism. What did he say? You said something else. Oh. Wine and communion. David has been arguing for us to change to wine and communion. By the way, how many of you would want wine in communion? How many of you would not want wine in communion? Okay, Phil. Come on. Okay, millennialism, eschatology, the doctrine of what happens at the end. Okay, Jody, come on. Head coverings, Gandalf. Women speaking, Esther. Are you a woman? Taylor? Arsenal? (laughs) No, he's not willing to cut you slack on that one. (laughs) Sabbath. How many of you believe that there is still some teaching concerning the Sabbath law in the Ten Commandments that we should live under? Raise your hands. How many of you think that it is done away with in the New Covenant? Okay, can we live with that? All right, people, you get the point. If you're really humble, you will allow people to reject you and you will stand for God's truth in central matters. There is no way except Jesus Christ. But if you're really humble, you'll also come up with things that are of a secondary nature. Okay? And you will consider others better than yourselves.